embark into, we've been in the Christmas season. Obviously, last week we finished up 1 Peter, and I'm excited on January 8th we'll be launching into 2 Peter. Uh, looking forward to continuing what Peter was saying to the same churches. Uh, two different letters, oftentimes overlapping thoughts, but really uh, you deal with one is comfort and 2 Peter is warning. So it's diving into the new year. Uh, but from now until January 8th, there'll be messages. This one is called Missing the Point. On Christmas Day, as I mentioned, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. The whole service centered around that with readings, uh, teaching from that, and then our songs, and then obviously participating together as the Lord has commanded us. And then January 1st, Pastor Theron will be preaching, and I believe it's a message uh, centered around the parable of the Good Samaritan. So excited to launch the year uh, in that way and hope that we can all uh, be here. I know there's travel and different things that come up, but uh, being able to come together during the season and worship and put our focus on Christ. Uh, so missing the point, there's so many uh, ways to think about it. I'm sure everyone has a friend that seems to miss the point of a joke, or uh, I had friends that told jokes with no points, which I think is even worse. But uh, I was looking for something to illustrate it, and I, I'm a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. So I, I read all of the books. I've, I've looked for anything written by Arthur Conan Doyle, if it's Sherlock Holmes. He writ, wrote some novels and some nonfiction. I wasn't interested in that. But I, I dove in. I love uh, the stories, and I've actually reread some of the stories. Uh, so in my research to illustrate Missing the Point, I came across a little Sherlock Holmes bit. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to do that. So here it goes. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went out into the English countryside to camp. They pitched their tent under the stars and went to sleep. In the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes wakes up Dr. Watson. And I'm going to pause just here. If you don't know anything about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, uh, they were a team that went out and blah, 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 blah. You should read the books. They're good. Um, so either way, uh, he wakes up uh, Dr. Watson and says, and Sherlock Holmes is a detective. There's the other little hint there. Uh, and he says this, Watson, look up at the stars and tell me what you deduce. Watson thought a moment and then said, I see millions of stars the moon and possibly other planets. The magnitude of our universe is quite amazing and speaks to galaxies beyond our comprehension. Holmes replies, no, Watson, you dunce. Somebody has stolen our tent. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the, the courtesy chuckles. I like it. It's about Sherlock Holmes and I, I enjoy the stories. But here's the idea. It's easy to miss the point. It's easy to totally miss what the emphasis is supposed to be and that's a funny illustration to lead us into what is the saddest thing to miss, and that's missing the point of Christmas. And that is illustrated vividly in the story of the wise men from Matthew chapter 2. What the wise men saw and pursued was missed drastically by King Herod, actually violently missed, and on purpose by the Pharisees. Uh, for me, this Christmas story and I know it's interesting to say it is one of my favorites, especially considering that the wise men may not have been there or probably were not there at his birth. But it's one of my favorite Christmas stories because it's one of the most convicting stories. Because it reminds me of what I can do. We're going to move through Christmas and some of the points and the fulfillment but the, the people that resonate with me, and I just want to share this personally before we dive in, are the Pharisees. And, it's, and I'll share this at the end. It's their indifference to Christ. It's their numbness. It is their unresponsive nature 
that strikes into my heart and into my mind. Missing the point was written for them and what they teach us. However, to get there, I want to work all the way through uh, some of what was predicted and what was fulfilled uh, to look through different responses because the real point of Christmas is obvious. The facts of his arrival are clearly prophesied and fulfilled. It left, scripture left nothing open-ended or doubtful about the coming Redeemer and the need for him. But it's just fascinating to me, Matthew 2, you read about people that overlook these irrefutable facts. They were indifferent to them. Or if you look in the case of Herod, they were violently opposed uh, to them. And so before we dive into some of these, I call sad stories that illustrate how easy it is to miss the point, uh, I wanted to take a look at the reality of the point. And this is walking through Uh, the predictions, because Jesus is irrefutably the promised Messiah, broadcast throughout all scripture. And from the beginning of God's word, we know uh, that a specific Messiah would come. Uh, In God's judgment against the serpent, the devil in Genesis, he states in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And this is our first illustration point indication that God is going to solve the problem we have created that we cannot solve ourselves. Sin had polluted the perfect garden and God's perfect creation, yet God immediately states that there would be a redeemer sent. And it's worth noting, God was not surprised by our sin. He had planned from eternity past before we even sinned to redeem us from it. Now, the reality of a coming Redeemer, an eternally existing Redeemer, was fixed in the minds of the Old Testament saints. Job, in the midst of horrific pain and suffering, and we've walked through the whole book of Job, even while questioning God, because where this statement falls is in a lot of questioning of God. Even in the midst of that, he states emphatically during that trial that his Redeemer lives. Job 19.25 makes abundantly clear, this is Job, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. I know, he says, the Redeemer. Even though he's embroiled in doubts and question. Isaiah prophesied clearly, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, verses we often know, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And these are just a couple of the passages in the Old Testament that point to a coming Messiah that promises or affirm the reality of a specific Messiah to come. And every one of these answers, and he did. Angels come to shepherds watching their sheep near the town of Bethlehem and announce the arrival of this Savior, Christ the Lord. And don't miss the words they use. Luke 2, 10 through 11 says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, because they were terrified. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And I said, don't miss the words. One, it's the Savior for all people. And, and you realize Christ came and to Jewish 
people, they think this is our Messiah. And from inception, the angel's announcement and, and Christ's ministry pointed to his redemptive work for all of humanity. It says that he'll be our savior, which is what he will do for us, redeem us. He is called the Christ, which is Greek for Messiah. He is the anointed one. And, and let's carry it through. Anointed to what? To be the promised king forevermore. He is the king of kings, fulfilling the promise of his arrival and fulfilling what Isaiah said in the millennial kingdom of reigning forever. And then he is our Lord. And that's used throughout scripture in, in, in different contexts. In this context here, it's pointing out clearly that he is God incarnate. The angels weren't making just fancy words that were poetic. They were telling the shepherds that the promised specific Messiah was here, that he had come to save all people, that he would be the king of kings and that he is God incarnate. It's full of doctrine. A specific Messiah was promised to come to earth and he did. But it was also promised that Messiah would come a specific way. In the book, uh, of Isaiah chapter 7, if you read it, and, and you know what, I'm going to hit a verse that all of us know very well, but if you look at the context of chapter 7, it's Isaiah talking to a very wicked king, King Ahaz, and Ahaz is given an opportunity to get a sign, which Ahaz declines in feigned humility. I would never ask a sign of God, and it's all a fraud from him. God, through the prophet Isaiah, responds by giving a sign to all Israel and beyond of the coming Messiah and gives a clear indication of the miracle of his birth. And that's Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, in response to Ahaz's, I don't want a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the Messiah would be born miraculously is the statement he would be called God with us. In other words, God incarnate, the meaning of Emmanuel, when he arrived. And he did arrive. An angel comes to Joseph. And, and I'll just give a context. Joseph is engaged to Mary. We know that. Uh, Joseph, after finding out that she's pregnant, is thinking, I need to set her aside. I need to, I need to end this engagement. He was going to do it quietly as a man that respected. But obviously, we understand that response from Joseph um, and he, in a dream, it says, but while he thought, Matthew 1, 20 through 23, but while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So we are promised in the Old Testament, we see the fulfillment of a specific Messiah, that a specific Messiah would come in a specific way, and the Messiah would come to a specific location. Micah 5.2 states this, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And again, talking of the anointed, the Messiah, who is Lord, God incarnate. From of old, from everlasting, is pointing to eternity, will come to earth 
in a specific location. And he did. When the wise men show up to Jerusalem, as we heard in the reading, they ask where the Messiah would be born. And then Herod asks all the chief priests and scribes where and is told in Bethlehem of Judea. As Matthew 2, 5 through 6 states, And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So the wise men get sent to Bethlehem by King Herod. The star reappears to guide them. And and I I put a note here. Have you ever wondered why it stopped? And, And this is just thinking out loud for me. So you can scratch it from your notes and say, whatever, Kenny's just talking, rambling on. But I always wonder, why do the stars stop? Why does, it, why does it guide them? And they end up in Jerusalem. And when you read the rest, the star reappears and they rejoice in its reappearance. Why in the world do they land in Jerusalem? And I, I wondered, as I was writing this, was the stop in Jerusalem God providentially preaching his arrival to the religious leaders, a call for belief in those who should know better? Because it's after the visit were reintroduced to the miraculous star, guiding them along their way. And I do believe it's a miraculous star out of the norm. I'm not trying to find some natural phenomenon to link it to. God sent a star to announce or to direct the wise man to where Christ was. A specific Messiah would come in a specific way to a specific location, brought to the forefront of Israel's thinking by Gentiles traveling to see him, But we also see in the Old Testament the Messiah would come from a specific lineage. This is initially seen in Jacob's blessings to his children, all the way back to Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, speaking of Messiah, come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. It is again affirmed in a promise to David on having a forever reign, which I just want you to note something. When you see a promise to David of a forever reign, and then you read First and Second Kings, and you read of the captivity, you recognize that there's a huge gap in history where someone from David's family is not sitting on the throne. And so you know God is speaking of Messiah and ultimately the millennial kingdom where Christ will reign. Second Samuel 7, 16 states of David, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. You go to Isaiah 11, 1 through 2, which makes abundantly clear. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He would come from a specific lineage, and he did. Matthew 1, 1 through 17, records Jesus' legal lines, the ones coming from Joseph. I won't read all the verses, but a spattering of them. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And then you say, hey, Kenny, but that's not his biological father. What about the link elsewhere? Luke 3, 23 through 28 records Jesus' physical lines, the ones coming from Mary. I'm going to read a portion. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, and that's a critical theological statement in that verse, as was supposed, as people thought, but not truly, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. 
And right away you think, well, wait a second, that genealogy links to Joseph. It looks like it's the same as Matthew's, but that's not the case. One, Matthew and Luke's genealogies do not match. Uh, 80% of the names you find in Luke are not anywhere else in Scripture. Two, the phrase by Luke, as was supposed, tells you this is not Joseph's line. So it's Mary's line. And three, Heli was not the father of Joseph. That was Jacob. Heli was Mary's father, and the switch to Joseph was a cultural thing. Uh, We see the precedent set in numbers uh, by Moses in linking to the husband of someone, linking to a genealogy and linking to Mary's, but they're going to give the connection to her husband. But what you have there is Jesus coming, predicted distinctively throughout the Old Testament and then distinctively fulfilled. Why go through all this? As I want you to see something, there was no reason to miss the point. There was no excuse to miss the point. The reality is it's yet another proof that our faith rests on bedrock. There is no crack and there is no question. We're not stretching anything, actually. And God has every right to ask us to stretch. But in this context of the Messiah coming, there is no one else that could be the Messiah. Every prophecy fulfilled and predicted. It also shows to us the lengths that people go to to miss the truth, which is obvious. And we know that we live in a world that on purposely rejects truth, that pushes back what is obvious there. I've shared many a times, and I know if you watch the news and you watch the media and you watch you know, different things, it's always spun, even on the scientific side, like it's obvious that evolution occurred and it's obvious that it wasn't created. And the fact is, if you dig just a little bit, uh, it's obvious that evolution is impossible I have a degree in science, my undergrad, and there wasn't a single professor I ever confronted. And I'm not the most confrontational, but this is one area where I would refuse to capitulate to them. And there's never a professor in all the science I did that could ever answer the origins. They they would always say, Kenny, just leave it alone. We're studying plants. Be frou-frou like you're supposed to, right? Look at the pretty colors, Kenny. That's what you need to focus on. But none of them could answer it because there is no answer. And if you read the literature of even the ones that are most adamant, they know that they do not know, that they've rejected the truth. But I want you to see the, the obvious nature of the truth of Christmas. Hopefully it convicts us to not be one of those that misses truth because of our sin and rebellion. And that's why truth is missed. There are guys that have written that are adamantly against God. And I remember reading one person, and his first name was Michael. I can't remember his last name. But he says, well, if we would pursue the idea of God creating everything, then yeah, this would prove it. But obviously, he writes, that's not where we're going to start from. And it reminded me that they would blatantly in the rebellion and sin reject what is obvious. Because sinful humanity is blinded by sin And so we're going to move now from the absolute certainty of Christ's coming to the sad and broken responses of mankind. We move from the reality of the point to the illustration of the point. Those who got it, the wise men, contrasted with those who missed it, Herod and the Pharisees. And we begin with a look at the group that didn't miss the point of Christmas, illustrated by the response of the wise men. And I put worth copying And what do they do? They pursued the point. Matthew 2, which we've read, it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. 
You come all the way to 9 through 12. And they heard the king. They departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. And just notice what they do and fell down and worshiped him. What is the response of these wise men? Pursue the point. What's their pursuit? To worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords to come worship the Savior. These are men that left a place where they were honored, by the way, to come to a place where they were not. Many people think that they were Parthians who actually fought against Herod early on in his political career. They were enemies of King Herod 40 years prior. Not saying them individually, but as a group of people. So they walk into Jerusalem, into the the homestead of a former enemy, and they're asking where the king is. They left what they knew and were comfortable with to go find a king so that they could worship. Their goal, we are come to worship him, not pay homage to him, not get him on our side, not manipulate him politically. No, we are coming to worship the king of kings. This is our goal. We have a singular mindset on what we're going to do. Singleness of purpose. I thought when I was looking through this this morning, I wish the church in America could have the same singleness of purpose. Boy, we swap the day of worship for any hobby or activity we want to do. What I don't see is people swapping a day of work or a day of school or a day of games or a day of something else, but they will swap the day of worship out. That's not wise men, and that's not wise And that's just not me saying, oh, yeah, you're a preacher. You want people to sit here. I do. But as a believer, it should confront us. It should should hit us in the face. And I say it from, I wish the church. Well, I'm in the church in America. I'm part of it. I have that same thinking and mindset where I will swap out the day of worship for my pleasure and bliss. And the fact is the wise men did not. We are come to worship him, singleness of purpose. And though we cannot pinpoint the star scene, I believe it was a miraculous star. That's why nature has struggles explaining it. It was revealed or understood by them to point to the way the Messiah. So what did they do? They traveled. They inconvenienced themselves. They left comfort. They entered hostility. Remember, they're walking into a former enemy's home base. It's almost, in a sense, reckless abandon because finding Jesus was worth it. Finding Jesus was worth it to them. And then I put here, but is it worth it to us? They find their way to Jerusalem, obviously hitting the hub. You've lost the star. Let's go to the capital of where this was leading and begin asking for information. It says they were saying, and the idea and the context behind this word saying is it's present and active, and it implies that they were asking all over. Repetitive requests. They know the king was born. They want to find out where it is. No negative response was going to deter them from doing this. It makes me think of Clayton, and I put by no means a wise man, though he talks like he thinks he is. Um, But this idea of zeroing in, he wants something, he's going to ask for it, he's going to ask for it. And if you have children, you have a lot of this illustrated for you, right? Because they will persist in what they want. You might get distracted, they do not get distracted. That is your weakness, it is your distraction, right? 
but they're going to zero in. This is the context of their asking. They are focused in Jerusalem, and what they do is they create quite a stir. They can't imagine how the Jews would not know of their own Messiah. No one seemed to have the answers. The majority of Israel was walking around unaware because sadly they didn't care. Yet these men persisted in asking. They find they had to find Jesus. They had to worship. Why? Because he was worthy of worship. That comes to my thought. How important or how diligent are we in pursuing worship? Or does the simplest hobby activity keep us from it? They did catch the attention of someone, though, someone that did provide some help, though very selfishly. King Herod heard, and through his influence, and by the word influence, there was no one more influential in all of Jerusalem than King Herod. He pulls the chief priests and scribes together and has them pinpoint a location from Scripture, which sent them to Bethlehem. So they head out toward Bethlehem, by the way, five miles away, roughly, and the star reappears. They rejoice with exceeding great joy because Jesus was found. All journey long, the star is led, it disappears, and they search, and then the reassuring light comes again, and they're overjoyed. They find the child, and when they arrive, they worshiped. They got the point of Christmas and put everything into pursuing it. But are we willing to forsake all to pursue the truth, to pursue worshiping the King of kings. But I want you to remember the somewhat helpful figure from Jerusalem, King Herod. And I put somewhat helpful in parentheses because we're going to find out his true heart. Uh, he plays a pivotal role in missing the point. And we're going to see that in the response of King Herod. And his response is missing the point in resentment. If you look at three through eight of chapter two, you're going to see him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And the reason Jerusalem is troubled is because if King Herod is, is messed up about something, you better be with him. Better to be behind him chasing down what he's interested in than not because you become the target of his ire. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where the Christ should be born. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. As you continue on, he sends the wise men off and he inquires of them in chapter, um, verse 7. When he privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And you're going to realize he asked that question because he wants to know how old could Jesus be? What is the age and what is the framework he's working with? And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. As you know from the reading in verse 12, God warns the wise men they do not head back through Jerusalem. They don't take the normal route. They take a different route home, warned by God. Herod responds to this, verse 16 of chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, it's not that they sent mocking notes to him saying, you're a loser, we tricked you. It's none of that. The idea that they didn't do what he said is mockery to him. You did what he said. Um, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. 
Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. In other words, there is no comfort to a mother who's had her child murdered by the king. Don't miss the descriptive words. How did he search with the wise men? Diligently. Herod was an extremely jealous king and didn't tolerate any question to his authority or any threat to the throne. He killed his brother-in-law, which I understand, high priest, because he appeared to be a potential threat. Then he killed his wife, followed by his mother-in-law, then two of his own sons, later killing a third son. I would say not exactly your ideal family member. You don't want to marry, like, ooh, big mistake, dude, marrying into that family. You know, that was rough Here's a man that's murdered his own children, his relatives, his wife, his mother-in-law, all because they posed a threat to him being king. And I want you to think of what it does to someone like that when former enemies, wise men, known for their wisdom, come to your city and say, we're coming to worship the king of kings, the ultimate king. Where is he? I saw a star. He's got to be close to you, King Herod. And this is his mindset. Here he is. He's not your ideal political ruler. He's ruthless and vindictive, ready to do anything to protect his position of power. So he is bothered, as verse 3 said. He was troubled. He's, he's stirred up. And here's the meaning of that word, stirred up enough to cause a riot. He caused great distress. So imagine being in Jerusalem you're already worried because these people have come and they've asked about this Messiah, which you should be interested in. Herod is bothered by it. Then he is now, and you're going to watch him, he is causing this turmoil. And that's why the chief priests finally, I guess, study scripture in a way that will give him an answer. They send him off, send the wise men off to worship in Bethlehem. And then Herod lies to them saying, I want to worship him too. Uh, but what does he do with the truth? Well, we read that, right? He murders, and not just a little murder, mass murder. Murders, again, that were prophesied in Jeremiah. And it says in, the, in Jeremiah 31, 15, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are not. In other words, God had predicted this horrific response that hair would take place. He's never surprised by it. It's all through Scripture. We see everything fulfilled. But how scary the measures people will take in rejecting the Savior to protect their life and lifestyle. He is the most horrific example. Could you think of someone worse than this? Can you think of, of, of anything worse? And I want us to be caught with the horror of what he did. He murdered every child to and under. And when we're removed from it, we tend to lose the weight of it. But he sent soldiers house to house to kill children just in case, just in case. The Messiah was there. And then think for a second what his resentment has done. He never asked the wise men skeptically, a miracle star, whatever, like there's really a star. No, he believed it. He understood from the scriptures that were read that the Messiah, the promised one, the King of Kings was to be born. He knew this was, this was a miracle. This was of God. And yet he persisted to resist it. That's so much hate, resentment, 
hostility towards Christ. I put as a question, because I think it's worth asking, is that where you are? Seeking to kill the truth because it changes everything? And as a believer, you may say, that's not me. I've believed. But how are you rejecting truth because it interferes in your life or hobbies? How harsh have you become against conviction? Do you go out to kill the conviction God brings from his word? In what way have you resented Christ? I'm sure you've experienced in your life pushback from people as you present Christ, as you present a life that's going to honor him, as you bring conviction, maybe even in, in, in vocalizing it, and people come back in anger. Anger is a coward's response, by the way. It's a bully's response to it. It's, there's no intellect behind it at all. Because they come with this anger and force. You know what that is? That's hostility to Christ. That's resentment of who he is and what he demands, rightfully so, from our life. Vehement resentment and attack, and, and sadly, is in and among the church. But that's not the only way to miss the point. There's one that is far more likely to occur in a Christian nation and to occur among those who should know better, the church, and we see that in the response of the chief priests and scribes. And if I want you to remember anything, and this is the one that hits me the hardest, it's the indifference or numbness of them. Matthew 2 and 4 through 6, and we've kind of worked through this, but King Herod asked them, where are they to be born? Where is the Messiah to be born? And I put here in my notes, they knew. King Herod called them and they say, look, it's right here in Scripture. Here are the experts, and it was surface digging for them. They knew Micah. They knew these passages. This was obvious to them. Magi have traveled from distant land, speaking of a star that points to your Messiah that you have anticipated for centuries. You verify where he, the Messiah, is to be born, and then never take a trip. They took zero action. Now, they're going to resist Christ adamantly, when his ministry unfolds in his adult life, when he's in his 30s and walked through, his adversary, the Pharisees, who uh, even John the Baptist calls him a brood of vipers, uh, who warned you to come, you know. And, and so they, they get very stern preaching too. But here, right at his birth, at the advent of Christ, they know exactly where he's to be born. There's these strange men from a distant land who say, I saw this miracle star pointing to Bethlehem. And they're like, yep, that's right. It makes sense. You should go to Bethlehem. They don't say, come tell us. They don't ask them to return. No one walks with them. No one journeys along. They take zero action. What they knew, they just ignored. Everything points to Bethlehem, yet no one attempted to see if it was true. Five miles away. I can even walk five miles, and I'm not a big walker. Five miles, that's it. You mentioned that you saw a UFO at your house and every fanatic from here to California would be camped out in your yard to see if it was true. Everyone would converge on you, not the chief priests and scribes. This didn't even warn a peak. They didn't even send a representative along. They didn't care. And I put Herod reacted to truth in a violent and negative way. And I'm not saying this as a positive, but at least he responded. He's bothered by Christ's coming, because it threatens his life and livelihood. It threatens who he is, what he has said is most important. 
But the religious leaders and experts remain completely numb to the truth, even though they're the ones supplying the location for the birth of the Messiah. You want to miss the point? Be indifferent. Be numb. Be unresponsive. I put, yet how indifferent are we? We have heard and know the truth. We have access to the truth. The truth we know changes it all. But our response is too often, so what? When will this be over? When can we go back to what we normally do? Why would my life stop? Why would I alter what I do? Why would I change anything about me? I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm just saying that I don't see any need to make any changes in my life. The scribes and Pharisees didn't even care to walk five miles to see if the long-expected Messiah had truly arrived because they had no interest in finding the long-expected Messiah. Messiah would be an inconvenience to their life. Truth and Christ were not important. Their life was. And so they were indifferent. And what was it that they brushed aside and Herod violently attacked? Uh, Old writer from England, G. Campbell Morgan, notes this, heaven as well as earth was moved at the advent. In other words, everything changed in all the universe when Christ came to earth. Hell itself was moved, as is shown by the stirring up of the hatred of Herod's heart and the awful slaughter of the innocents. So what did they miss? What was stirred up? Why Why did the whole universe get rocked? That's what he's mentioning. He's saying everything was turned on its head because of this baby being born, this fulfillment of prophecy. Well, it was God emptying himself, as Philippians 2, 7 states, making himself of no reputation. And that word means that God took on humanity. That means he's emptied himself. He gave up divinity, but he, he made himself of no reputation. He became man. And then to ultimately do something, to humble himself, which meant taking on death. Hebrews 2.17 states both of those principles in one verse. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, God with us, making himself of no reputation, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, dying on the cross, humbling himself. What do they miss? To summarize it in simple phrases, God emptying himself, coming to earth, and God humbling himself, paying our price. That's what they missed. That's the truth that is spurned. And here's the thing that should strike deep into our hearts. When we push back against God's conviction, that is the truth that we are spurning. No, Kenny, I I believe in Jesus dying on the cross, and I love having eternal life, but that God would ask this time of me, that I couldn't do this and the rest of the world gets to do this, that spurning, emptying himself and humbling himself. The resentful Herod and indifferent scribes and Pharisees miss the point. They traded for what was in front of them. They have fleeting power, position, and glory. Herod was the king of this area and he ruled with an iron fist and everyone jumped when he coughed. And the chief priests and scribes, they like the position they're in. 
Herod dumping people into the high priesthood uh, that don't belong there, to be honest with you. And so opportunity was in front of them and so they could capitalize on it. They traded for what was in front of them, fleeting power, position, and glory, and they missed eternal life. They bypassed redemption to gain the world. And that's a horrific choice. Don't repeat their mistake. If you're here this morning, I would say, first and foremost, don't reject Christ to gain temporal crumbs. What looks like it's important today is not important at all in eternity. One of the blessed things, and and this is when we walk through loss in, in life, and I go back to losing loved ones, but when they know Christ, we look at them, we say, oh, and even for Heather's mom, there's times where it hits home. We, we miss her being there. We miss her missing things. And the second we say it, and for me, it's always the kids with Christmas clothes because she loved it. And so when they put on their Christmas clothes, I know that was something that meant something to her. And I actually talked with Heather's brother. We both enjoyed watching her enjoying the kids in those clothes. And then it hits us, but she's not missing this. Those are still crumbs. They're hugely important and, and emotional and, and they're memories that we can savor. But she's in heaven and she's clothed with what Christ clothes them. And she's worshiping at his feet. In other words, even though that's beautiful and wonderful and brings warm sentiments to us, they are crumbs. Don't reject Christ to gain temporal crumbs. And don't borrow from the mistakes as a believer. Don't get caught up in this life and become numb to the life that actually matters. If I can have anything change because of this message on the idea of missing the point, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I hope you'll walk away from chasing this world and this life and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's nothing better. I apologize that as Christians, we don't manifest that as we should and that God has chosen us to be ambassadors and works through us, and oftentimes we fail. But I would say, if you look at Scripture, there's nothing better and nothing more important than knowing Christ as your personal Savior. And believers, I hope that we can resist the danger of indifference, the danger of numbness that so easily permeates our life because we become numb to what Christ has called us to do We push back against it, and we don't even know we're pushing back. We don't even feel it anymore. How horrible is that? So I hope that we can be struck, not with the fear, but some sense of reality that it's very easy to become indifferent. It's very easy to not know. You see, when you're indifferent, when you're numb, you don't feel it anymore. And so I would encourage you to walk away from this and instead of just affirming the fact that you don't miss the point, start searching for ways you have. Because that's what's hit me as I prepare this message is I'm starting to think, I miss the point a lot. I miss the point a lot. Kenny, you're missing the point because if you're not looking for it and you've been indifferent or numb or justified in what you do and how you act and how you respond, well, quickly you're not responsive anymore and that should scare you to death. So as believers, I want to call you to just go examine life and see how you may have become indifferent. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, don't chase the crumbs of this life. Eternity awaits. God sent his son to die on the cross so that we can have forgiveness of sins. Don't walk away from that. Let's pray together. And Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come study your word. Thank you for sending your son 
uh, to earth. Thank you for making him of no reputation as we, we watch what unfolds, what he gave up for us. And his sacrifice was immense. As we journey to the celebration of his birth, as thus mentioned, help us to grow in anticipation and excitement, not because we get to do the traditions and eat the food and get the presents we like, but instead as we anticipate celebrating our Lord coming to earth, give us focused minds and hearts this week. Help us to be seeing you, seeing your amazing sacrifice and seeing how that should change our lives and be seeking for the change that needs to take place. I know we all have ways that we've missed the point. Maybe the illustration doesn't describe us specifically, but we know. So Lord, give us insight and discernment. Drive us to your word and reveal to us ways that we've missed the point. And we need to change and we need to, to not be indifferent and numb, but recognize the beauty of worshiping you, that when we get to glory, when you call us home, we will worship at your feet. And it's not something to be mocked or made fun of. It is the whole purpose of man to bring you glory. And in heaven, we get to do so without sin surrounding us and help us here on earth to be focused on that, uh, to not lose sight of that. In your precious and holy name, amen.